Hello, everyone. Welcome to the uh, review of ULR 2023. I have with me the faculty who covered lupus at ULR 2023, and this is our lupus panel where we gather and share notes about what we thought were the highlights of the meeting on systemic lupus erythematosus. We're going to begin with introductions. I'm Jack Cush in Dallas. Janet? Janet Pope, London, Canada. And Bella. Bella Meta, New York. And Yus. Yus Yusuf, Leeds, United Kingdom. Excellent. Okay. So let's just, let's begin. Um, why don't we begin with uh, Bella? Hi. So I think there was uh, many interesting abstracts, uh, uh, including the guidelines. But let's talk about one of the uh, one of the abstracts that I particularly like. It's poster number zero one seven zero. This was looking at all cause mortality and cancer incidence. Uh, it, it from a large uh, registry. So this was like around 1,500 patients, uh, around 6,000 person years, and they followed these patients over time to see incident cancer rates uh, and also compared it uh, in patients who um, were on biologics versus those who are on what they call standard of care, but what I assume it's, uh, it's or, or in the fine text, it's mostly DMARDs. Um, and we did it did notice that there was slightly higher incidence of cancers like uh, uh, the the standardized incidence ratio was like around 1.21 uh, but um, when they uh, adjusted it uh, incidence ratios for example for rituximab or belimumab uh, those were mainly the two biologics that they looked at was not uh, the cancer rates were not higher um, again, this is sort of reassuring data in terms of um, uh, biologic use in SLE patients, but also that, um, uh, you know, overall the risk was not very, very high in lupus. Um, I know that cancer risks uh, and even mortality risk, um, there's a lot of talk in the RA world, but not in the lupus world. So this was a good reassurance sort of a study. Um, given the low rates of uh, mortality as well as incidence cancer. So use my, my um, uh, recollection of this information is that there are some studies that show higher cancer rates, which we've always assumed would be related to inflammation. But lupus, it's not as high as an RA because the patients are younger uh, and we're not using cytotoxic therapies anymore. Where, where does this stand in the lupus community? Yeah, so uh, I do agree. So I think this is a, a beautiful study that uh, you know presented by Bella. I think uh, we need this uh, data uh, to reassure our patients uh, because I do face that in the clinic. Uh, a lot of our patients sometimes when I wanted to start uh, them on immunosuppressive therapy, such as mycophenolate, because it's written sometimes in the information leaflet that it can increase risk of cancer. And a lot of our patients sometimes they come back to me saying like, well, I I've read this information leaflet about it, and there's there's potential increases of cancer, but it's not quite specific to mention what potential risk is there. So I think this data is quite uh, reassuring in 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 that sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, go ahead, Janet. What's your what's your first one? Okay, so this was a large RCT. Um, so looking at upadacitinib in as monotherapy and SLE, and just 
a couple things. So it's a large phase two. So they're going to go into phase three. So it was a, a combo molecule that was um, a BTK type drug with UPA 30, another um, molecule with UPA 15 of this BTK, um, the molecule alone of the BTK, UPA alone at 30, and placebo. So two um, forearms that were active treatment of two different doses and then the placebo. So lots of people probably were feeling that they had active drug because it was a high chance of having active drug. Anyway, good primary endpoint, SRI4 improvement, steroids less than or equal to 10 milligrams, and that was at 24 weeks. And what they wanted to look at was um, SRI4, but the overall flare rate, what was happening with double-stranded DNA, and then a little bit about the interferon gene uh, signature scores. So number one, the um, added molecule, the BTK, didn't do anything. Number two, we're talking about 30 milligrams of upadacitinib. And if you remember that UPA is a higher dose potentially in inflammatory bowel disease, um, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, and they will have, if they haven't already in many countries, gotten their approvals there. It's also a higher dose in atopic dermatitis. So this high, higher dose here was well tolerated. Um, there was SRI4 was um, no added value with the two drugs uh, combo instead of the one drug. So BTK didn't do anything. And the placebo rate was kind of um, modest to moderate, which we do expect. Um, no new safety signals, including no um, uh, MIs or uh, no imbalance of VTE or um, uh, PE, DVT, when you look at that. So I thought it was interesting. I think, um, you know, after a failure, which might have been trial design, bad luck, who knows, of um, a JAK2, knowing here that a JAK1 is successful and knowing that the, in a way that competition for an oral treatment would be um, from the Paisley trial, the Ducravacidinib, which is the TIC2 Drugs. So I think it's kind of interesting, maybe a new potential, another oral treatment, and we'll see what both these drugs do in phase three. You know, uh, I thought this was encouraging. I think it was interesting that they threw in the, the BTK inhibitor in there and that they had a combination of a BTK inhibitor plus a JAK inhibitor. But you're right, the BTK did nothing, and hence that's, that's the end of that story. Although the and there, in the United States, we had one BTK inhibitor approved for hematologic reasons this year, um, but there are trials in a lot of autoimmune disease, MS, lupus, I heard scleroderma, certainly RA, but I think this is one of the first ones where we're going to see it's not going to be developed any further in lupus. I'm sure there are other trials going on, so that's the end of that. But will the JAK inhibitor last? This is a phase two, um, and it seems to me, when I keep thinking about why lupus drugs fail in lupus, especially when they look like they're going to work in phase two, they usually fail because placebo responses. I want to blame the outcome measures or the drug isn't good enough or the patients were wrong, but boy, high placebo responses are what killed ustekinumab and baricitinib. Um, and when the placebo responses stay low, so if I'm designing a trial myself, I'm not going after an SRI4, I'm going after a renal endpoint, but um, I'm doing all I can to keep that placebo response low. What do you think about these placebo responses, Janice? And, and I mean, you're you're a real methodologist. 
Right. So what I think you have to really do is um, disqualify when you go up on your prednisone more than transiently. Then you should be an intent to treat analysis. If you have to up your steroids for more than two weeks or something like that, and certainly not near an endpoint, that's a primary or a secondary endpoint, then you're out. So you can still keep them in the trial, but they'd be an intent to treat that they would be considered non-responders. Once you start letting the prednisone kind of be fiddled around where one group is actually lowering on average more and the other group, the placebo is increasing on average more. To me, that shows that one drug works better than the uh, standard of care. And I think a lot of trials haven't done that. And I think that that really contaminates studies too. And this one, I think um, they did adjust for like, they looked at the cumulative steroid dose. But I think you just, you know, RA trials were never done where you could mess around with prednisone for very long. No, you're out if that happened. And, you know, a lot of the RA trials, I mean, it makes sense that lupus, we include standard care. So we did it in RA, but RA, the standard of care is kind of uniform. It's always methotrexate and very little else. Um, whereas in lupus, the standard of care can be hydroxychloroquine, azathioprine, methotrexate, mycophenolate. And those are not like running the same race, you know, treating the same disease. And so that also kind of, I think, makes doing lupus trials really difficult and may contribute to some high placebo response rates. But all right, let's, uh, I think that was encouraging though. We look forward to uh, further studies with upadacitinib. Um, use what was uh, high on your list from the meeting? Yeah, so I just want to uh, discuss uh, regarding to therapy again. So I think this uh, uh, about uh, baricitinib uh, phase three trial uh, in uh, lupus nephritis. Uh, so the reason I, I want to bring it out is because of once the session finished, I think everyone's just muttering around in the in the room saying like, whether is this going to work or not for lupus nephritis? So I think it's causing more questions rather than an answer. So um, as we know, um, a trial of baricitinib in non-renal SLE uh, in uh, two uh, phase three randomized control trials, BRAVE 1, which actually had a positive uh, signal, uh, whereas the BRAVE 2, actually have a negative uh, outcomes. So therefore the company said, well, I think the trial results is inconclusive. Um, so uh, what happened next? So now we're looking in terms of the uh, lupus as it was the renal uh, uh, population. So this is um, uh, randomized, well, uh, the investigators claim as a phase three randomized controlled trials in Egypt, so in one country only. Um, so what happened, they randomized uh, 60 patients in to two groups, uh, one is baricitinib, uh, and uh, and second, uh, so uh, plus uh, uh, placebo infusion monthly, uh, and and then the other group two is uh, cyclophosphamide. So it's quite a good dose, uh, monthly uh, cyclophosphamide uh, plus you know pl placebo tablets. Um, so the primary uh, endpoint that they use is uh, a reduction in uh, proteinuria. So they only just use one uh, single measure rather than in you know, a more composite. Uh, endpoints. So what they found, um, uh, the primary endpoint was actually at 12 weeks, so it's quite short duration. So at 12 weeks, uh, there are 70% 70, uh, 70, uh, people on the baricitinib group uh, achieve a significant reduction in proteinuria versus uh, 43%. Uh, and also when they did uh, adjust for like SIDA and complements, also at, at uh, 24 weeks as well, it shows that it's significant in the baricitinib group. So I think what's, what's the thing that um, we're not, uh, um, so you know, people are debating about it because 
A uh, in terms of the endpoint measure use. Um, so there's only single like this proteinuria, you know, usually these days, like in terms of complete renal response rate. So we wanted to, we have like in a lower so in the proteinuria plus stabilization of uh, in a creatinine or EGFR and also reduction of steroid. I think that will be ideal. So if that will be used. Um, uh, other uh, thing to mention as well is I think people are a bit nervous because what happened uh, is quite brave, the study. I mean, I'm honest, it's a bit fun, you know, from the previous trial because they're comparing it's not like baricitinib plus MMF versus, you know, adjustments like that. It's just baricitinib versus cyclo. I think people are a bit nervous whether is this really going to work on this high-risk population. So usually on lupus nephritis, we are actually comparing to the standard of care. So I think that's the thing. I think the more question to answer is I think we need a, a larger studies uh, if, 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 if this has actually been developed uh, in, in this indication further. So, so they get... They get uh accolades for doing such a study uh, at a single center with 60 patients with nephritis. That's really quite impressive. Um, yeah, we'd like to see larger numbers and whatnot. But as, even though they chose a single variable outcome being proteinuria, which is not a great monitoring drug nor a great primary endpoint, um, they, still ha they had the same pattern of outcomes with secondary endpoints as well. So there were a number of, of measures that were acceptably better in that uh, in that baricitinib group. So that's encouraging. Um, the you know, what's that? Know. The population that they, they're doing this, right? It's very homogeneous there, but I don't know if it'll be reflected when it's like, uh, you know, African-Americans more, or I, I don't know, like with Caucasians, uh, we'll see what the, what that throws in the mix. So they're 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 homogeneous because they're genetically and, and ethnically homogeneous as opposed to in the US where it's Hispanics, whites, African Americans, Asians, and and, and that makes sense. response rates for lupus nephritis are different in these patients, right? In all these groups, we know that. Yeah. The other thing is no one's gonna develop it because Obviously, Lily has walked away from the drug in lupus after uh, failing the phase three. But I think it gives us a chance that maybe if patients, you know, our standard of care in North America and actually in, in UK would be MMF, not cyclo. But I realize in a lot of countries, cyclophosphamide is uh, less expensive and, and not an inappropriate standard of care. It's just CELSEP would be our standard of care. But I think it gives us you know, if my patients have not responded to a few things, and maybe I would consider this because it's very difficult for us to get access to um, double dose belimumab, which is what you need for um, lupus nephritis because of the cost. We don't get vocosporin because of the cost. And anaphrolimumab, we don't have yet publicly reimbursed in Canada. So, and they, they're working on a, a double dose as well for their phase three RCT and lupus nephritis. So I think right now it's like, okay, if we have to, it might be something we might consider. You know, use I think Bella brought up what was the secret sauce in this trial, and that was the homogeneity, both in the population and the endpoint of lupus nephritis. You know, going with a general SRI4, I don't know who to give the drug to in the, in the end, when you have that endpoint, uh, and then lupus nephritis with, with, you know, activity parameters going in, when you homogenize your population, you get a truer answer. Do you, do you think that that's right? Does that, you know, how, how do you feel about, you know, an organ specific outcome as opposed to a general outcome in lupus trials? 
Yeah, so I think uh, that's why I think people wanted to do more at similar clear in one organ specific, for example, that renal nephritis, because potentially you can get a clear picture of what's going on rather than the non-renal side where there's plenty of domains in occurring. However, um, I think even these days, like to submit for regulatory approval, I think you've got to use uh, as, as composite endpoint measures. And uh, if you compare, we now have uh, two drugs that actually, you know, license in lupus nephritis and belimumab and vocrosporin. So they've been using this composite index. So I think, you know, for the next, you know, you know drugs that's going to be marketed. So you need to have a unique selling point, you know, to to outlast, you know, these these, these tools now that have been licensed. So yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm going to start where our next round of short, uh, shorter presentations. Um, uh, abstract 0586 was an abstract about uh, something we have talked about at ACR last year and uh, recently, and that's a better biomarker for disease, and that's CD163 in the urine of patients with lupus. Um, this wasn't as big as uh, Dr. Andrea Frava has done at Hopkins, um, but 45 patients with lupus of different types and whatnot. And what was shown quite simply is that it's a very discriminatory marker between active lupus and inactive lupus, between uh, active nephritis and inactive nephritis, uh, and performs better than many of the other things that we commonly use. And I think we need to be going, I, I like this research, although it's uncontrolled and not as large, I get it supports the work that that is starting to come out that says urinary biomarkers are really have greater predictive value. We you know we rely on what in managing lupus complement levels not always great and proteinuria certainly not great. They have pitfalls. When they work, they work. They're beautiful, right? The problem is that they're not truly predictive enough to be to have the utility that they're certainly given. So. That's that. That's was the one my one shorty favorite that I liked. Okay, um, Bella, why don't you give us yours? Um, I, I think uh, the the second one I would say is uh, abstract number uh, OP zero two two six. This was I think a large you know uh, you know thirteen country large prospective study uh, with lupus patients uh, looking at if you you know. We really want remission in all our lupus patients, but even if you uh, achieve lupus low disease activity state, um, uh, seems like there is uh, less organ uh, damage, less adverse uh, outcomes, even in uh, a, a prospective follow-up arm that they had. They had around 4,000 patients uh, looking at uh, at least two or three years of data. Um, and I think it just sort of takes home the fact that not just remission, even low disease activity is probably a good target for these difficult patients sometimes um, because just, just achieving that also improves our outcomes significantly in terms of flare, damage, mortality, um, and the numbers look pretty promising there. So, um, yeah. So I, I saw this, I didn't get to see, I, I saw the title, I circled it, I didn't get to see it. Am I right in that the 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 take home on this poster was that there are advantages to L LDAS over remission in in in, in the lupus cohort they look not at? LDAS over remission, but even LDAS uh, is probably protective in some sense um, 
it's not better than remission. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. No, no, no. I, I think that they were just saying that even just uh, LLDAS itself is uh, an independent predictor. Uh, it is even without remission. But like if you achieve LLDAS and then remission, obviously it's better. Okay. And, and again, LLDAS, guys, right? Right, LLDAS. Yeah, these LLDAS. guys published and, and presented a year or two ago that um, if you were in remission, you had better survival. And the longer you were in remission, obviously, the better the survival than sometimes. So it's interesting. It's not contradictory. It's just almost like a dose response. Remission is the best. LLDAS is pretty darn good. Um, higher disease activity, not great. So I think they're just cutting and uh, slicing and dicing, but I actually like that one too. Yeah, also can I, can I ask each of you, um, use, I'm, just, I'm sorry, can I ask each of you, what do you measure in your lupus patients to determine if they're well-controlled or in remission? Do you do LLDAS or anything like that, Bella? No, it's, no, I don't. I don't, I don't. Janet? Uh, no, except for, for research cohort. Right. And use the, what do you do clinically in your practice? Yeah. So, so I don't use LLDAS clinically, but uh, we do, you know, measure bi-like in our in clinical practice, in routine practice. We've got a nice performer, easy bi-like to use as well. Yeah. Okay. So the, the British Isles, lupus activity, I don't know what the G stands for. Yeah. Group. Um, group. group. Yeah. There you go. I think. I mean, I think our patients are already asked so many questions sometimes that they, they don't answer for patient-reported outcome measures well if you don't dedicate a particular amount of time for it uh, right. on the visit. Okay, that's interesting. Janet, what's your... Okay, use, go ahead. Can I just add, uh, so uh, in addition to uh, Bella's uh, uh, posters uh, 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 work that presented, also uh, Professor Eric Morans also presented in oral presentation. Uh, I think it's OP0226. So I think uh, also a large cohort in Asia in the Pacific uh, in terms of the use of LLDAS and what, uh, what they found that if you rich uh you know ll das you will actually be protective in terms of flare and damage so not you know if you can stay there longer it'll be quite good as well but i think if you even if you just reach the ll das target you still get the benefits of that so i thought we're just adding on that yeah okay that's good excellent all right janet what's your your last one Okay, so I'll be brief. Um, I, I think a couple years ago, I well, a year ago, I tweeted, don't put the cart before the horse. And now I think we should maybe put the car before the tea and think of car tea. So I'm starting to really change my mind on it. It seems like it was well tolerated. Now, number one, it's not ready for prime time or every patient. Number two, in many groups, it'd be very expensive. But and number three, there's only seven patients. But these patients that had CAR T, it was um, well tolerated. They weren't really getting a cytokine um, release syndrome the way they do with lymphoproliferative. Um, the cells can be uh, saved if you're recurring. They can be sort of unfrozen and given to you again. And these people come off therapy in order to get the CAR T uh, treatment. Um, they get the, obviously you got to drain their lymph cells and the more you deplete them, the better, frankly, they get the CAR T in there, they grow um, their uh, B cells back and they're naive. So they're not um, making DNA. Uh, the complements have normalized uh, some antibodies stay like the ones you'd like to stay from the plasma cells, which would 
be all your immune system of um, your your memory cells from infections and vaccinations. So it seems to be the plasma blasts that are happening, and the B cells grow back naive. They're they're not really tickled yet to, and maybe never to um, be uh, making antibodies and autoantibodies from lupus. So it's only seven. You know, the largest follow up presented um, was only a couple of years, but these people have remained in drug free remission and in biochemical and um, antibody remission, which is pretty cool. So I think um, I think we need some actual randomized control trials because if we can reset someone's immune system um, in a disease like that, where these people have failed a lot of drugs and a lot of them had nephritis, like they weren't they weren't trivial disease. I think it's pretty neat. So Janet, at the ACR presentation by Georg Chet. He showed that I think with six months of follow-up, I think only one patient was starting to get, to get back their B cells. Now we have an extended follow-up, but now in seven patients. What's the story on B cell return in these patients? Is it still staying down or is it starting to come back, but they're still in remission? Right. So what's happened is the B cells have grown back. Uh, as um, After you do CAR-T, your cells are supposed to proliferate. That's what happens at day seven. After you get it, your B cells are growing, but they're they're uh, naive in that they're not uh, recognizing the uh, antigens. So they basically aren't producing, they aren't recognizing. Um, so that's pretty cool. And by the way, it's um, I it was OP141 for those listeners who want to look. But anyway, the, so far so good on the B cells. Um, one person had a bit of a relapse, was retreated. Um, I don't know how you prime them the second time around. I'm not sure. But they were retreated because you make more than enough of the CAR T for that individual patient. So you, they were retreated and have done well. Excellent. Okay, you, you get to close out the session. Tell us what uh, what you liked. Yep, so uh, I'm a B-cell guy. <laughs> so I still hope uh, in terms of B-cell therapies. So uh, so the one uh, that I want to present is a uh, phase two uh, RCT. So this is uh, Iana uh, Lumab. Uh, so this is a different mechanism. So it's a dual inhibition. Uh, so it's actually a buff receptor inhibitor, uh, but it acts on eight ADCC, which kills the B cells. Uh, and also it then uh, acts on buff, which inhibits the B cell survival. Um, so Ayanalumab got a positive phase two trial in Sjogren, which was presented two years ago and now in phase three. So now it's following in, in lupus as well. So uh, this was uh, an interim analysis of uh, the trial. Uh, and I think we talk about this now, but the placebo response is now, Jack. Um, so essentially uh, what happened in this trial, so it's a non-renal lupus. Uh, the primary endpoint is, is quite strict. So it's actually um, uh, using the SRI4, but also uh, combined with prednisolone lower than five milligram per day. So the trial of upadacitinib just now was 10 milligram per day. So uh, so they compare uh, yanalumab uh, uh, versus you know, placebo and uh, plus standard of care. So uh, what happened... Uh, in the interim analysis, so uh, there were like 34 patients uh, in each group. Um, so 44% uh, achieved this primary endpoint at six months compared to 9% uh, you know, uh, at six months in the placebo group. So it, it looks like the, the, the data is reassuring, the safety profile is reassuring as well, uh, and it's now open, you know, uh, to, to start phase two trial uh, and something that maybe uh, we will look forward to in, in, in the next few, a few, few years, yeah. So where was the trial done? Uh, so the trial was done actually multi-center, uh, uh, a few, few countries, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
with a 9% placebo response. Mm. That's analysis. Yeah. That's yeah. really it's impressive and that's a ticket to to regulatory approval if you ask me. So that was great. You know, the the low placebo response was again seen with the teletastacept uh, a repeat study that we have looked at before uh, coming out of, of China um, that also looked good, different mechanism. But um, so I'll, I'll ask your final comments. Um, I think most of you uh, had some uh, or were able to view the lupus guidelines. Do, does anybody want to give a, a one takeaway from the lupus guidelines for the audience? Janet, you want to start? Sure. So one is um, prednisone's bad, use less of it. Um, try to get them to the lowest dose, five milligrams or less, and hopefully less. Um, you don't need to pulse maybe with a gram times three in lupus nephritis, maybe for some people, um, uh, 500 milligrams times three for other sites or even just starting like 40 milligrams orally and rapidly going down and adding um, other immune suppressors with it. So prednisone is bad, less is better. Uh, Bella, do you have a takeaway from the guidelines? Uh, I think the IV cytoxin, they put that back in thinking uh, in high-risk renal failure patients, you can give IV cytoxin. Um, and also the combination drugs, like now they're saying we can give combination stuff. I mean, we do, we do it in clinical practice all the time, but now it's in the recommendations, uh, you know, give uh, rituximab, Benlistra and others uh, as needed, so. Excellent, and you, what do you like? Yeah, so uh, the I think the most progress is pertaining to the lupus nephritis, you know, in addition to the low-dose steroid that Janet was mentioning. Um, so the, the recommendation is, uh, they said uh, for remission induction, uh, first line with, you know, cyclophosphamide using the urolupus or MMF, and then there's a line, and then considering combination therapies with voclosporin or belimumab. So I think... <laughs> For, like, for me, I think I put probably would like to be a bit more harder rather than considering because of the data clearly shows, you know, these days, belimumab and uh, vocosporin versus MMF, you know, they're, they're, they're superior than MMF. So I think their practice these days, I don't think so we can really justify patients, uh, we justify our, our act, like to give MMF first and then fail three to six months later and then you add something. So I would like to see it more, more aggressive. So uh, I'm actually co-chairing of the British uh, Society of Rheumatology uh, revised guideline, which is going to come up next year. So I don't know how my committee is going to react with if, if we tend to recommend it stronger, right. but we'll see from that point of view. But I think, yeah, but it's good recommendation that, you know, they, rec you know, they, they acknowledge the combination therapy, but maybe I would just like to put a bit more stronger than considering. So I think that's probably my take. Yeah. All right. All well, some people had, had the other way around, right? Some people were like, oh, they're um, promoting these combination therapies much more than they should. So use you have like a totally, I mean, I understand it works and you should do it in the right patient, but not in all patients too. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the nephron that we may lose. So. Well, you know, yes. the guidelines and the, you know, the grade methodology favors the companies who do the studies. So if you do the study uh, and it's going to be a grade A evidence per, you know, in the review, you're going to be in the mix. But I must congratulate you, Laura, for also being pragmatic and practical about some of their, their statements here. Um, so that, you know, there's, there is no new dev data on cyclophosphamide, but yet it still is in the mix, uh, as is mycophenolate. So 
and as you know, guidelines are really for you to consider. They're not, you're not bound by them in any, any way. Um, they're good teaching tools, if anything, um, and good ways to have discussion. So, all right, I wanna thank the panel for an enlightening discussion um, and for the, all their hard work uh, at ULAR 2023. It was a great meeting, largely because of Janet Hughes and, and Bella. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you.